Well, thanks, uh, Pastor Bob. It's great to be here. Appreciate uh, the invitation. We've been trying to get here for millions of years, I think. <laughs> Actually, during 2020, I started to believe in millions of years. But, <clears throat> you know, for all of us, it was a very long year. And uh, we're hoping 2021 will be better. Well, so much for that. But anyway, I thought I'd just start by mentioning uh, I'm from the Ministry of Answers and Genesis, and we're an apologetics uh, ministry. And as apologetics ministry, what we do is proclaim the authority of the Word of God and also teach people how to defend the Christian faith. Pastor Bob mentioned our attractions there in northern Kentucky. Uh, I encourage you to go. It's only a one-day drive from here. They are absolutely phenomenal. So there are two leading Christian-themed attractions in the world, the life-size uh, Noah's Ark, and we have a big conference centre there as well, our Answers Centre, and we have a zoo uh, at the back, and then our Creation Museum, which is really a whole walk through the Bible, and we have a 4D theatre and planetarium, and uh, it's incredible too. I won't show you all of this, but just a, a little introduction to sort of see uh, how professional exhibits are. In fact, I think uh, you'll find that the exhibits are are even more professional than you'd expect even from secular uh, attractions around the world. And so come and visit us, uh, bring a family. People are looking for God-honoring, family-friendly places these days, and we need to raise up generations to stand on God's word, and this is one way uh, to be able to do that. What I want to talk about this morning uh, was the relevance of Genesis in our divided nation, very much as a divided nation. In many ways, it's a divided church too. We have problems in the church, in America, in the whole Western world. We've done research over the years about the fact that two-thirds of young people are walking away from the church in America by the time they reach college age. Very few are returning, and we did research on that ourselves and also found out that some of the reasons that they left the church were like, how can you believe in a loving God with all the death and suffering in the world, and what about science, and how can you trust the Bible in today's world? They weren't taught how to defend their faith. And I published a book on that already gone in 2009. But I want you to have a look at here the research that's been done by the secular world to help us understand what's going on with church attendance. They divide groups uh, according to when they were born. And so the greatest generation in America, born 1928, before 1928, 56% went to church. Then the silent generation is 44%. The boomers, I'm in the boomers generation, 32%. And then Generation X is 27%. The millennials, 18%. Do you see what's happening to the church in America? In England, church attendance is down to 4%. And then you get to Generation Z, 
Now, Generation Z, uh, well, they're not the youngest generation. The youngest generation now are called Generation Alpha. But generation, but they're the real little ones. But Generation Z, George Bunder did research on them. Notice what he said. Born between 1999 and 2015, the first truly post-Christian generation. And twice as likely to be atheist as any previous generation. And one of the things that I have noticed is that when you look at the older generations, I call the older generations the greatest, the silent, and the boomer generations, they're more Christianized. Uh, because of the Judeo-Christian ethic, going back to the founding fathers that came out of the Bible. And so even if they weren't Christian, they believed that marriage was primarily, you know, a man and a woman and abortion was wrong and so on. But when you look at the younger generations, Generation X, then Generation Y, then Generation Z, and you can imagine what Generation Alpha is going to be like if it keeps going the way it is, they're the more secularized, brought up in a more atheistic system, brought up in a more atheistic education system because the public schools for these generations have by and large thrown the Bible out and replaced it with the religion of naturalism, which is atheism. And in fact, that research was done by Pew Research in 2010. Here's some of the latest research. You'll look at this, ages 13 to 34, church attendance now is down to 11.3%. You can see the trends. We're becoming a very secularized culture. And as the culture becomes more secular, it becomes more anti-Christian because it's a clash of worldviews. And this has happened right through uh, the Western world. In fact, the whole Western world, from a worldview perspective, is becoming less Christian every day. You could describe our culture, I believe, with Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. When people ask me what has really happened in our culture, it's very easy to understand. You take generations and tell them God's word is not true, that man determines truth. When you have no absolute authority, then everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And you'll see moral relativism permeating the culture. You know, I grew up in a very pagan culture in Australia, but it was still rather Christianized as well because we inherited the British system and so on. But, you know, I never heard of these issues when I was growing up, even as a teenager. But they're everyday issues for our kids today. Gay marriage, abortion, euthanasia, pedophilia, racism, gender issues. And a lot of Christians, unfortunately, don't really understand the nature of what's happening because they look at this and say, look at all the problems that are, that are in our culture. But they are not the problems, they're the symptoms. Do you realize they're all the one problem? I mean, I, I want to challenge us. Gay marriage, the gender issues, racism, they're the same problem. They're symptoms of the fact that we have generations that no longer build their thinking on the word of God. And now as a result of that, we sort of feel a bit like uh, uh, Paul writing to the Philippians. We're living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We're starting to understand, I think, what uh, he even means by that description there. You know, as we look at it, we're seeing a tornado of moral relativism that's ripping through our culture. And we want to ask this question, how do we make sure our children are not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes? How do we stop our children being swept away by this tornado? Because the majority are. The majority from our churches are being swept away. You know, my wife often says to me, yeah, if we have five children, in fact, I brought our youngest with us today, we have five children, four that are married, and uh, 18 grandchildren. And she often looks at our grandchildren, she says to me, I really, really worry about the culture they're growing up. They're growing up in a different world to the one we grew up in. 
We need to make sure they've got the right foundation. How are they going to survive in this world? How are they going to survive that tornado? What can we do? Well, you know, the first thing we need to understand is what happened. Well, what did happen? Actually, the Bible tells us what happened. It began in the garden 6,000 years ago when God said to the first man, Adam, Adam, you can eat of all the trees. There's one tree you're not to eat of because if you do, you'll surely die. In other words, Adam, obey God's word. Well, you know what happened? The devil came to Eve and said, did God really say? Stop right there for a moment and think. What was the first attack? It was on the authority of the word of God. And in fact, you know what's interesting? In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, God, through Paul, has a warning for us. I'm afraid as the serpent beguiled Eve through his cunning, so you will be, paraphrasing it, led astray and led away from the things of God. In other words, the devil's going to use the same method on you and on your kids and on your grandkids as he did on Eve. Well, we better be aware of what that method is. What method did he use on Eve? We go back and find out. It was to get... Adam and Eve to doubt the word of God so that that doubt would lead to unbelief and then you will be like God. In other words, you can decide truth for yourself. You be your own God. You know what we see today? We see the younger generations in particular increasingly becoming people who are their own God. They decide what's right and wrong. It's all based on feelings. It's all subjective. They determine what they want. And so what happened back there in the garden was a battle between two religions between God's word and man's word. In an ultimate sense, there are only two religions, not hundreds of religions. In an ultimate sense, it comes down to this, God's word, man's word. You go all the way through scripture, what do you notice? A battle between light and darkness. A battle between those who build their house on the rock, those who build their house on the sand. Those who gather, those who scatter. Those who are for Christ, those who are against. By the way, you notice something about that? There's no neutrality, right? And there are only two religious positions, ultimately. There's no non-religious position, and there's no position that's neutral. See, I say that because people have the idea, oh, when you eliminate God, the Bible, prayer from the public schools, you eliminate religion. No, you eliminated Christianity. They replaced it with a religion that man determines truth. You see, there is no neutrality. And unfortunately, many Christians have been lulled into this idea of neutrality. And so when the atheists come in, like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, one of those groups, and they say, you can't have crosses or nativity scenes or prayer for a football game or whatever, because you're imposing Christianity on them. And you say, oh, okay, we'll give all that up. Now they've imposed their religion of atheism. That's what's happened. And it's happened through the whole culture. See, Here's the point I want to make to us. When you start from God's word, who knows everything, that's how you build a Christian worldview. Your worldview just doesn't come out of nowhere. It has a foundation. You have beliefs that determine the way in which you think about the world. If you don't start from God's word, there is only one other foundation, that is man's word. And we have generations that have been indoctrinated by the culture to believe man determines truth, you can't just take the Christian doctrines and Christian worldview and try, try to impose it on them because it won't work. They've got to have the right foundation. And if they've got the wrong foundation, they end up building the wrong worldview, which is what we're seeing happening to those younger generations. So what can we do? I want to challenge us about two things in particular that we need to be doing as parents, as churches, uh, throughout uh, the world. One is we need to raise up 
our children, our grandchildren need to raise up generations to be thinking foundationally. What do I mean by that? Well, how do you build a house? Well, here in Pennsylvania, they always start with the roof and then they build the walls and that won't work, right? And you've got to have the right foundation. You can't try to squeeze a sandy foundation under it. You've got to start with the right foundation. By the way, you might notice my symbolism here, sand on the left with the collapse structure, the rock on the right. Think about what, why I might do that. So we have to start with the right foundation to build the walls and the roof. I want you to think of the walls and the roof as like the Christian worldview, our doctrines, but we have to start from God's word. You see, the Bible is a revelation from God who knows everything there is to know about everything. It's not a guidebook that you add to your thinking. It's not just a book of spiritual things and moral things and relationships. It's a book of history that's the foundation for our worldview. And so I'm going to give us some practical examples there in a moment. The second thing we need to be doing is teaching apologetics. And we do this. We teach people to think foundationally and teach apologetics through our attractions and through the books that we have, like the ones you see out there in the lobby. 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense or answer for what you believe. The word defense or answer, depending upon your translation, comes from the Greek word apologia, from which we get our word apologetics, and it means to give a logical reason defense of the faith. You know, in Genesis 3, Paul warns us that, God, that, that the devil's going to use the same method on us as he did on Eve when he said, did God really say, in other words, asking questions to create doubts so that you will stop trusting the word of God. I call that the Genesis 3 attack. And what we're really being warned is there's a Genesis 3 attack that's going to happen. We have to understand what is the Genesis 3 attack. Let me ask you a question. Think there while you're sitting there. What is the Genesis 3 attack for today's world? Because it manifests itself in different ways throughout history. I've traveled all over the world in the, in the past 40 years. Or should I say the previous 39 years? We didn't do any traveling last year. <laughs> And as I've traveled all over the world, one of the things that I have noticed is that it doesn't matter what country you're in, in this era, the era we live in, when people hear on about Christianity and the Bible, they ask the same basic questions. And they sort of go like this. Wait a minute, don't we live in a scientific age? Hasn't science disproved the Bible? How do you know the Bible is true anyway? What evidence is there for God? Who made God? We believe in, you believe in Adam and Eve? Where did Cain get his wife? How did all the races come about if there are only two people to start with? And where's the evidence for the flood? And don't fossil layers prove millions of years? We know man evolved from ape-like creatures. How could the story of Adam and Eve be true? How can you believe in a loving God with all the death and suffering we see in the world? Didn't dinosaurs live millions of years ago and evolved into birds? How could Noah fit all the animals on the ark? Hasn't science proved evolution is true? Isn't the Bible an outdated book of mythology? Just for interest, put your hands up if you've heard those sorts of questions today. Oh, that's a surprise. I think just about every hand in the audience went up. You know what you just told me? That's the Genesis 3 attack of today. You see, Martin Luther wouldn't have been asked those sorts of questions. I mean, carbon dating wasn't even invented in his time. Right? Peter and Paul won't ask about dinosaurs because the word dinosaur wasn't invented until 1841. 
But these are the issues today because of what's taught in the school system in regard to evolution and millions of years, the way Christianity is being attacked, the way the Bible is being attacked. These are the sorts of questions that are being asked all over the world. And you just acknowledge that you've heard those questions. That's the Genesis 3 attack. That's just some of them. Now let me ask you another question. Don't put your hands up. Just think. How many of you can really answer those questions? And how many of you have taught your children to answer those questions? How many of you taught the kids in your Sunday school classes and youth groups to answer those questions? Because if we're not doing that, we are not raising them up ready to face the tornado that's around them. Because this is what the devil is using to create that doubt. This is the Genesis 3 attack of our age. And that's why we built the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, why we have those books that we have out there, they're unique, because they deal with raising people up to think foundationally and teaching apologetics. You know, at the Creation Museum, we walk people through the Bible. We have a number of different exhibits and planetarium and 4D theater and so on, but a centerpiece is our walk through the Bible, and we call it the seven seas of history. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, consummation. I'm going to challenge us that we need to be raising up children, grandchildren, who have the seven seas of history as glasses they look through 24 hours a day to understand this world. Because you see, if you go through it real quickly, creation, God made a perfect world. He made the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Corruption, Adam sinned. Death came into the world. Everything's changed. The world we're looking at today is not the world as God made it. Now, think about that in relation to some of the children's books that we use or some of the Sunday school material people use across this this nation where it'll say to kids, look at this beautiful world God made. And they look out there and see an ugly world with death and suffering and disease. And then the atheists say, see, there can't be a loving God. See, we've got to teach them to correctly to look at this world and realize this is not the world as God made it. This is a fallen world. It changed because of sin and the curse. And then catastrophe, the flood of Noah's day. That's why we find fossils all over the earth. It's not the graveyard of millions of years. Most of it's the graveyard of the flood of Noah's day. And it's a picture of salvation. Noah and his family went through one door to be saved in the ark of salvation. Jesus said, I am the door. Confusion, Tower of Babel. We're going to do that uh, here today at 1.30. And then it'll be live streamed at 6 o'clock tonight. And uh, I encourage as many of you here in the live audience to come back at 1.30. Things are always better live, don't you think? I think they are. And plus, I need an audience. <laughs> if I just talk to empty seats, it's, it's real hard to get enthusiasm. But anyway, so, but we're going to deal with issues of race and racism and the origin of so-called races and skin color. Do you know everyone is the same skin color? Did you know there's no black or white people? I'll explain that when I do the talk. We'll even deal with issues like interracial marriage. Well, how can there be such if there's only one race? Which there is, because we go back to Adam. We'll deal with all those sorts of things, right? But because God gave different languages, then we end up with different people groups. But you see, back when Adam sinned, God promised a saviour. And then through that line from Adam all the way through to Noah, and then Abraham, and then we have God's steps into history in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the babe in a manger to die on the cross, be raised from the dead and offers a free gift of salvation. And then consummation, the end of all things. Do you realize those first six seas, that's already happened? We're heading towards the seventh one and we want to be there <laughs> the way the world's going. But you know what? While we're here, we need to engage in the business of the King of Kings till he comes. And that's what we need to be doing.
But I want you to think about this. The first four C's there, Genesis 1 to 11, that's the foundation for all doctrine, the foundation for the rest of the Bible, and the foundation for our Christian worldview. If you don't raise up generations founded in Genesis 1 to 11 for every aspect of their thinking, then they're not going to have a Christian worldview. And don't expect them to withstand the tornado. Let me explain to you. Let's go through and look at what I'm talking about, apologetics and thinking foundation. Apologetics. Let me give you an example of apologetics first of all. Let's take the first C, creation. When you come to the ark, we actually have an exhibit where we have a cutaway model of the ark and we have other exhibits too, uh, answering the question, how could Noah fit all the animals on the ark? Because you know what the atheists do? They mock at people who believe in Noah's ark because Noah couldn't fit all the animals on board. We've heard that question. I heard that question back in 1975 when I first became a teacher in Australia. And the atheists will use it today. Well, here we have an answer and we say, you know, there are about... 1,398 animal kinds. We actually think it's less than 1,000 actual kinds of animals. Now, let me explain that to you. When I debated Bill Nye in 2014 at the Creation Museum, he mocked me for believing in Noah's Ark because he said Noah couldn't fit all the species of animals on the Ark. Well, the Bible doesn't use the word species. It actually uses the word kind. In Genesis 1, God made kinds according to their kind. The implication is each kind produced its own kind. And then we meet the word kind again in Genesis 6. And that is, two of each kind, seven pairs of some went on board Noah's Ark. So we need to understand what the word kind is. Well, if you look at our classification system, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, we would say in the majority of instances, the Hebrew word mean that's translated kind corresponds to not genus, not species, but family. Sometimes order, but mainly family. See, if you take dogs, there's uh, 34 species of dogs, and they all belong to one family, Canadae, the family of dogs. And we would say that they represent one kind because you can document that they're all connected from a breeding uh, perspective. So this one is documented to breed with that one, that one 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 never bred with that one, but they're still connected. You see that? That's how you work out what a kind is. And when we did that research, we would say about 1,400 kinds at the most, but because some you still can't document properly, um, and so we really believe the, the, the true number is less than 1,000 kinds. And most animals are pretty small. There was tons of room on the ark, that's the point. And so Noah only needed two dogs. Two dogs that go on the ark, they come off the ark after the flood, increase in number, but when God made each kind, he put maximum genetic diversity in there. We're going to do this tonight in much more, well, when I say tonight, 1.30, in much more detail, and tonight, live streaming, uh, we're going to do this in much more detail and show you how it applies to the humankind. Everyone in this audience looks different to each other, but we all go back to Adam and Eve, right? Everyone in the world looks different to each other because... The information that God put in our genes allows for millions, billions, trillions upon trillions of combinations, zillions actually. And so because of that, as they move away from each other, depending on which one breeds with which, which dies out, which survive better, over time you end up with your species of dogs. And that can happen really quickly. It doesn't take millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, Noah's flood was about 4,300 years ago. Now, that's apologetics. 
In other words, giving answers to questions like, how could Noah get the animals on the ark? How could you get all these different species we have today? That's apologetics. But I want to concentrate particularly on thinking foundationally and also use apologetics as a part of that. And I want to deal real quickly with some of the issues today. Gender. Now, there's an emotional issue in our culture. How do you deal with gender as a Christian? Well, I'm going to challenge us. Anytime we want to deal with any issue as a Christian, where does our worldview come from and where is it founded? We must start with Genesis 1 to 11. That's what we do. We start from Genesis 1 to 11. We don't start out here. We don't come up with some subjective idea. You start with the Word of God and the first 11 chapters. In Genesis 1.27, God said he made male and female. How many genders to start with? Two, if God's Word is true, which it is. Genesis 5, it says male and female he created them. You read that all the way through the Old Testament, like in Leviticus, for anyone, male or female. And then in Matthew 19, when Jesus was asked about marriage, he reiterates that the, he made them from the beginning male and female. It's recorded in Mark 10 as well. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And here's a bit of apologetics. Science confirms it. Because when you look at the sex chromosomes, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes that make us as humans. And the sex chromosomes, in the male you have X and Y, in the female you have X and X. And so science confirms two genders. Now, here's what the world will say, but there are exceptions. There are some people that have three Xs, some have two Xs and a Y, and so it goes on. Yeah, there are some exceptions, they're very small, but do you know why that is so? Start with Genesis 1 to 11. The fall of man, because of sin, now, God no longer holds everything together perfectly. We run down and we die, and there are mutations and mistakes that get added into our genes. And in fact, chromosomes have all sorts of mistakes caused because of the fall that result in all sorts of diseases, but that doesn't negate the created order of things. Everything was once perfect. There was male and female. And people, it helps us also understand you know, the Bible says we're not neutral. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, right? And so our heart is we don't want the things of God. And so we've got to recognize that about people. And we've got to recognize how, how sin affects our thinking, how sin has affected even our genes, and so it goes on. What a difference when you start from God's word. And here's the thing that I found. It sort of takes the emotionalism out of the argument when I'm talking to people because... Today, there's this idea that, oh, if you come out and say there's only two genders, that, that that's hate speech. That's because when you have a worldview that you're taking to someone who has a different foundation, it's clashing with their worldview. And you see, the way I always approach it with people is I want you to understand, if you don't have the same foundation in God's word as I do, you're going to have a different worldview to me. I get that. I want you to understand I do start here with the Bible. Now, when they say, but we don't believe the Bible, say, oh, okay, that's where the real argument's at, now let's talk about why you don't. Because until you sort that out, you're never going to get anywhere up at this worldview clash area. Think about the abortion issue. Have a guess. Where should we start to deal with the abortion issue? Genesis 1 to 11. Right, so we start with Genesis 1 to 11. God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Okay. No animal was made in God's image. 
Only humans were made in God's image. You know what's interesting? We live in a world where kids are taught there's the animal kingdom and under the animal kingdom is man and all the animals. Wait a minute. Shouldn't man be separate from a biblical worldview perspective? Shouldn't we be taken out and being in our own kingdom? We might have a body like a mammal's body, but we are different to the animals. How do you make the animals? Let the earth bring forth the animals. How do you make man? Let us make man in our image. We are different. And so we should be separate. See, that's another problem. When kids are indoctrinated that we're just like the animals, we're just another animal, we might be a higher animal. They're even saying you shouldn't teach it that way today, uh, even from an evolutionist perspective. We're just an animal. No, we're made in God's image. Now, a little bit of apologetics. We know we get one set of DNA from the mother, one from the father. Fertilization. A fertilized egg. Stop right there for a moment. A unique combination of information different to the mother, different to the father. I mean, every one of you can look at your mother and father and realize you might look like them or look like your brothers and sisters, but you're different. You're a unique combination of information. And as that cell then develops into your body, builds your body, no new information is ever added, which means you are 100% you unique right from fertilization. So abortion is killing a human being right from fertilization. That's what it is. And see, you need to be ready for some of the arguments. A woman has a right to do with her body what she wants. A fertilized egg is not her body. Do you know that a woman's body wants to reject a fertilized egg because it's foreign tissue? It's a unique combination of information. Just as if you have a kidney transplant, you have to take anti-rejection drugs. Did you know that God already built in an anti-rejection mechanism into the uterus to accept the fertilized egg, which is different to the mother? I mean, think about it this way. Here's an easy one. If you're carrying a male developing in your womb, XY chromosomes, that's not a part of the mother, mother's body because she doesn't have the Y chromosome. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that's an obvious example to help us understand. We have an exhibit we opened at the Creation Museum that I believe is the most powerful pro-life exhibit in the world. And it deals with all of these issues. I was talking on this at the Creation Museum a couple of years ago, and a young lady came out to me afterwards, and she had tears in her eyes. I'd say she was in her late teens, and she looked at me, and that teary look, and she said, I was brought up in the church all my life and nobody ever explained that to me about being made in God's image and we're different to the animals. Nobody ever explained that to me about DNA and the unique combination of information. And she said, what if someone like me has had an abortion? And you see, here's something that we always need to be sensitive to as Christians. God is a God of love and a God of grace and a forgiving God. And you know what I said to her? I said, you know what God's word says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. He says he'll remember them no more. And we have that in our exhibit actually too. And when I said that to her, she got a big smile on her face and she said, thank you. And off she went. Because we want to give that message to people too. Because many have been led astray and indoctrinated and not taught correctly as well. And we need to be sensitive to that. And so at the Creation Museum, I encourage you to come and go through our pro-life exhibit. Absolutely astounding. We cover all the aspects of it from a biblical perspective and all about abortion. It's great really to bring your whole family to, through, to and show them the developed 
development of a child in its mother's womb. All these models our own designers did because um, we couldn't find anything in the world that was good enough quality. Every one of those hairs in that baby's head was put in individually, by the way. It's just an incredibly powerful exhibit. Okay, let's get on to another one, marriage. Have a guess, where do we start to build the right worldview in regard, where do we start? You're starting to get the idea, Genesis 1 to 11. So we start with Genesis 1 to 11. See, Genesis 1 to 11, the origin of all the basic entities of life in the universe and the meaning of everything is tied up with its origin. It's the foundation for everything. Everything. So God made man from dust, not from an ape man. Evolution doesn't fit with the Bible. We return to dust when we die, not an ape man. And then God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so... God brought the animals to Adam to name. Why did he do that? To show that he was alone, that there was no one like him. No one else made in the image of God. And then what did God do? Put Adam to sleep and from a rib, from his side, not from an ape woman, can't add evolution to the Bible, made the first woman. And then when God brought the woman to the man, Adam got all romantic and poetic. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman. You were taken out of man. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 11, twice in that chapter, Paul says woman came from man, not from an ape woman. You know, hey, isn't, next month's February, isn't it? Isn't, um, isn't Valentine's Day coming up? Hey, idea for you. Guys, take your wife or your girlfriend out to dinner. Sit down, rip their mask off, make sure it's the right person. <laughs> and then, let, then look into their eyes and you say to them, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are a woman. You never know what that could do. I mean, anyway, it's just my idea. You might want to try it. Hey, do you know what the next verse is in Genesis? You ever thought about this? The next verse is, therefore, this is the reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and there'll be one flesh. That's the creation of marriage right there. The Supreme Court justices didn't create marriage. God did. And there's only one type of marriage, the one God ordained, and it's one man and one woman. And that's why I say to people, you know what? You can, you can call whatever you're doing gay union or whatever. Don't call it gay marriage because there's only one marriage and that's the marriage God ordained in Scripture. By the way, when, when they want two men, two women, where do they get two from? It comes from the Bible, right? Satan always twists everything around. Now, again, I remind people, if you don't start from the Bible, I totally get it. You're going to define marriage however you want. But because I start here, this is why I define it that way. The clash of worldviews is because we have different starting points. Very important to understand. By the way, I can uh, give you one who will attest to the truth of this, who doesn't tell a lie, who is the truth, who's our creator, when as the God-man was asked about marriage, and look how he answered. And it's recorded in Mark 10 as well. Haven't you read the authority of the word of God? Read what? He who created them from the beginning made the male and female, Genesis 1.27, and Jesus attesting to two genders, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and there'll be one flesh, Genesis 2.24, attesting to marriage being one man, one woman. You can't get any more clearer than that. 
You see, the point is, when you start with the history in Genesis, you build the doctrine of marriage. That's where it comes from. That's why we as Christians believe the way that we do and what we should believe. But it's not just marriage. Every single biblical doctrine of theology, directly or indirectly, is founded in Genesis 1 to 11. You try to name one that's not. Sin, Genesis 1 to 11. Death, Genesis 1 to 11. Why is Jesus called the last Adam? It takes place the first Adam, Genesis 1 to 11. Why do we need a new heavens and new earth? Genesis 1 to 11. Why do you have a seven-day week? Genesis 1 to 11. Marriage, Genesis 1 to 11. Why do you wear clothes? Because you all are. But the animals don't. God gave clothes because of sin, Genesis 1 to 11. People, Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for everything. And yet, for a lot of us, we've been so intimidated by the world and our kids have been intimidated by the world because of so-called science and all the rest of it, we don't deal with Genesis 1 to 11 and we wonder why we're clashing out there with, with the, the secular worldview and what's happening. We need to raise up generations founded in the word of God starting with Genesis 1 to 11. You know, one of the big questions that the younger generations have today, and the atheists bring this up all the time, how can you believe in a loving God with all the death, disease, and suffering in the world? As a Christian, where do we start to understand, have a guess where we start to understand this? Genesis 1, you're getting it, Genesis 1 to 11. That's the second C in our seven C's walkthrough, corruption. God made a world, everything was very good. There was no death or disease. But then, Adam, if you... Take this fruit. If you rebel, you will die. Adam rebelled. It's called sin. We're all descendants of Adam. He was the head of the human race. We come from him. What he did, we did. What was God's response? Actually, the first death. He made garments of skins and clothed Adam and Eve. In other words, he had to kill animals, shed their blood, and give Adam and Eve a covering. That's one of the exhibits at the Creation Museum. Think about it. First blood sacrifice, the covering for their sin, a picture of what was to come in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's really the gospel right there. Setting up the sacrificial system. The Israelites sacrificed animals over and over again. We don't sacrifice animals today. We didn't slaughter a sheep down the front here or anything, did we? Because it was pointing to the Messiah who would come and die once and for all. And he has done that. Now, that's also the origin of clothing. It was to be a covering for our sin, but it can't take away our sin. You see, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Why is that? The life of the flesh is in the blood. Hmm, think about that. It's even the reason in Genesis 9 after the flood, when God said we could eat everything, he changed our diet actually. Originally it was a plant's fruit. But he said, but you're not to drink the blood because as you read in Leviticus and other places, that belongs to God because that's, that's the life of, of the creature. And so in Adam, we sinned and brought death into the world. So there has to be giving of life to pay the penalty for sin. So there has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin because we're not connected to the animals. A man brought sin and death, a man would need to pay the penalty for sin. So it has to be one of us, we're all descendants of Adam, there's only one race, but we're all sinners, we all have sinned. So it can't be one of us, but it has to be. What did God do? Stepped into history in the person of his son to become the sinless God-man, to die on a cross, be raised from the dead and offers a free gift of salvation. Wow. 
There it is. The whole gospel is founded in Genesis. And we start to understand it. By the way, if you believe in millions of years as a Christian, and all these fossils were supposed to be laid down millions of years before man, so you've got the shedding of blood for millions of years before man, after God made everything, he said everything was very good, yet without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins, that doesn't make sense if there was a shedding of blood for millions of years. And you know what else in the fossil record? There's lots of examples of animals eating each other and bones in their stomachs. Originally, the Bible says Adam and Eve and the animals were vegetarian. We weren't told we could eat meat until after the flood when God said, just as I gave you the plants, now I give you everything. It's the reason you can eat a hot dog, because it is everything. <laughs> Even the origin of a hot dog is in Genesis. Look at that. <laughs> if you believe in millions of years as a Christian, here's another problem. In the fossil record, there's lots of examples of diseases, tumors, uh, abscesses, cancer, in the bones, supposedly millions of years before man, and then God said everything was very good, so God's calling cancer very good? No. Do you know what, you know what God's word says about this world? Romans 8. The whole creation groans because of sin. That's what God's word says. These two things can't be true at the same time. You can't have death before sin when the Bible says death came after sin, which means the fossil layers can't have been laid down for millions of years. Hmm. Can't have been. So how do we understand fossils? Guess where we start to understand fossils? Genesis 1 to 11. Oh, the flood of Noah's day. If there really was a global flood, you'd find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth, and that's what you find. Now, that's a whole other talk in itself. And this is a whole other talk in itself, which we're going to do at 1.30 and stream it tonight at 6 o'clock. How do you deal with racism, racism and prejudice? By the way, you start with Genesis 1 to 11. Are you surprised at that? And we get, get to that third uh, C, uh, sorry, fourth C, confusion, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion. We all come from Adam and Eve. There are only eight people that survived the flood and... When you look at Noah's Ark, there were eight people on there, including the three sons of Noah and their wives, and Genesis 9 tells us that those three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the Bible makes it clear we're all descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, going back to Noah, going back to Adam. So there's only one race. The Tower of Babel formed different people groups, and I'm going to go through all of that uh, in detail in the next section. Do you see how important Genesis 1 to 11 is? Do you see how important it is to make sure we raise up generations that know where their thinking comes from, what we think as Christians? It doesn't come from me or from somebody else. It comes from God's word. And that's why we believe what we do. And then know how to give answers to the skeptics who try to attack God's word. People, we need to be raising up generations in our churches, in our Sunday schools, in our youth groups, in our homes, in our schools like that. And that's what we do as a ministry, using answers from biology and geology and anthropology and biochemistry to defend the Christian faith and show it confirms God's word. And we raise up generations to be thinking foundationally, starting with God's word in Genesis and when they're anchored to God's word and know what they believe and why they believe what they do, then we pray they will not be swept around by that tornado of moral relativism. 
And so think about it. Two foundations, two religions, and two different worldviews. God's word, one race. Man's word, Darwin taught different races, lower and higher. God's word, marriage, one man, one woman. Man's word, however you want to define it. God's word, gender, male and female. Man's word, you can, you can mutilate yourselves, you can take chemicals, you can try to change your gender, whatever. Because, um, you know, there's no God to whom we're accountable. God's word, abortion, killing a human being right from fertilization. Man's word, you're just an animal, doesn't matter. And then think about this. If we have kids that have the wrong foundation because the education system, media or whatever, the foundation of man's word, and you want to put the Christian worldview on them, it's not going to work. And so I always use these diagrams, two castles. We're in a, we're in a battle. God's word, man's word. From man's word, the sand, the secular worldview, moral relativism. God's word, the rock of God's word, Christian worldview, uh, Christian doctrine. The absolutes of Christianity. But God's word, we need to understand Genesis 1 to 11 is foundational to the rest of the Bible and to that worldview. The devil knows the Genesis 3 attack, attack the word of God to destroy that Christian castle. And in this day and age, there's been an attack ever since the 1700s, 1800s in our day on Genesis 1 to 11. Sadly, many Christians have said, you don't need Genesis 1 to 11. We see the structure collapsing and then we look up there and say, look at all the problems and try to deal with them. But I've always said, you can get a president that comes in and changes laws in regard to abortion. Then you get another one that comes in and changes them right back. Because that's not the issue. You know, and, and to be honest, politics is not the answer, ultimately. I'm not saying we shouldn't get involved. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I believe we all should, to be light and salt and do the best we can to impact the culture. But the bottom line is, if parts are not changed in regard to God's word, you're not going to change the system. It has to change from the foundation up. That's the bottom line. And so what our mission is all about as a ministry is to raise up generations with the right foundation of Genesis 1 to 11, the right worldview, understand their doctrines, and are equipped with answers to defend the Christian faith and deal foundationally with the problems, with, for those who reject God's word, only then can we deal with those issues. And I want to give you one practical example of dealing foundationally, then mention just a few of our resources out there real quickly before we finish. In 2018, I spoke at the University of Central Oklahoma and the LGBT movement opposed us and even had us canceled at first and then we got re-invited, long story. But at the end, we had a question time. And I want to show you this to show this is a real question from one of the LGBT people, a woman in the group of the LGBT. And she said this, I'm a spiritual Christian and also part of the LGBTQIA plus community. I sought the Lord in churches for why I feel attracted to the same sex. I found the church nor the church's traditional view of LGBTQIA experience fit my experience of hearing the Lord speak directly to me. Science, not the church, gave me peace. How can you say my experience of still being a child of God and LGBTQIA plus isn't valid? All the way through the lecture that I gave there, it was a public lecture and we had lots of the professors and others there and students, I kept saying, if you don't have the same foundation as me, you're going to have a different worldview. And I kept doing it that way. And so when it came to this question, there's silence in the room. And I said, you know, I said, here's the thing. I've been talking about God's written word. You say God spoke directly to you. If that's the same God, his written word and his spoken word can't be contradictory. 
That must mean you and I must have a different view of God's word, particularly starting in Genesis. And until we talk about that and discuss that, we will never deal with our worldview differences. And so that's where we need to start, down here. And I said, and that doesn't mean I hate you. Not at all. You know what the Bible tells us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love the, your neighbour as yourself. Because we do love each other. And I said, you know, I've, I've said to you, we believe we all go back to Adam and Eve and we're all one race. We're all family and we need to treat each other as family. You know, the whole audience clapped. Most of them were non-Christians because they want to hear that. And I'm going to deal with that particular aspect of the family going back to Adam and Eve, the race issue in the next session.